Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. A federal judge has ruled that the University of North Carolina did not discriminate against white and Asian American applicants and that the university can continue to consider race as a factor in its undergraduate admissions. Federal Judge Loretta Biggs ruled late Monday that the university has shown that it has a compelling reason to pursue a diverse student body and has demonstrated that measurable benefits come from that goal. It was the second trial loss in as many years for the conservative group Students for Fair Admissions, which also sued Harvard. Joining me is Audrey Anderson, who heads the higher education practice at Bass, Barry & Sims. It took about 11 months after the trial for the judge to reach her decision. Why so long? I'm actually not surprised at all by that. First of all, even though that she stopped taking evidence in November, the parties did not hand in their post-trial briefs until February, maybe. So she didn't have the whole case before her until February. And as her opinion actually pointed out, the evidence in the case was really voluminous. Her trial lasted eight days long, but the parties had come to agreement on lots and lots of other evidence that they stipulated should be part of the record. So in addition to the eight days of trial testimony, there was lots and lots of other expert reports and other materials that the parties agreed they did not need live evidence about, but that were nonetheless in the record. So she had a really voluminous amount of information to go through, and she wrote a 161-page long decision. So I'm not at all surprised that um, it took her this amount of time in order to put out this. It's the same group, Students for Fair Admissions. Are their claims here similar to the claims they brought in the Harvard suit? Yes, June, they're very similar. They allege that the University of North Carolina put too much weight on race in admitting students to its programs and also that it did not adequately consider race-neutral alternatives before using race as a factor. The difference between this case and the Harvard case factually is that in Harvard, there was evidence that one factor in the Harvard admissions program, the personal rating, had been analyzed by Harvard itself to show that it disadvantaged Asian American students. Now, Harvard said that that analysis, their own researchers had done was incomplete and wasn't really accurate. 
but nonetheless, it was part of the record. And so a lot of what the experts were talking about in the Harvard case was, does this one piece of evidence, the differences in the personal rating, which is a very subjective rating between Asian American students and other students, show that Harvard is really discriminating against Asian American students? And so that was a lens that was used a lot in the Harvard case. There was nothing like that in the North Carolina case. So there was no smoking gun evidence to show that UNC was discriminating against any racial group. So Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA, had even more of a kind of sterile statistical kind of case that they put forward to say that based on this statistical analysis, which shows that the test scores and GPAs of Black students and Latinx students tend to be lower than the test scores and GPAs of white and Asian students, that means there must be discrimination or there must be too much weight being put on race by the admissions people at the University of North Carolina. So tell us what Judge Loretta Biggs ruled and why. So she ruled that the University of North Carolina's use of race is completely consistent with what the Supreme Court has held is appropriate under the Constitution. So she found that the University of North Carolina had proved that it it was using race for the educational benefits of diversity that it had looked at its own school and said, this is why we want to use race, or this is what we're trying to get out of diversity. We think that there are educational benefits in that our students will have more in-depth discussions. We think that diverse groups of people come up with more innovative and creative solutions to problems. We think that having a diverse group of students teaches our students empathy and understanding. They had five different things that they had identified that a diverse student body would bring to the University of North Carolina. Student body would bring to the University of North Carolina. So Judge Biggs found that they had proved that. And she also found that they needed to use race in order to meet those goals. So the use of race was necessary, and they didn't use it any more than they needed to in order to hit those goals. So their use of race was narrowly tailored. According to the UNC website, this year's incoming class of 5,600 students included 65% to identified as white or Caucasian, 21% as Asian or Asian American, 12% as black or African American, and 10% who said they were Hispanic, Latina, or Latino. But yet the judge criticized the school for not making enough strides in recent years and said it's been defined by most of its existence by discriminatory and obstructionist policies, not ones that hurt white and Asian American students, but that disadvantaged students of color. Well, that was another interesting difference between this case and Harvard. In this case, the judge allowed a group of students to intervene as parties on the same side as the university. So they were also defending 
the university's affirmative action policy. These were students of color. So once these students were parties, they were able to put in evidence like the other parties did. And they put in an expert report that um, put out all the history of the University of North Carolina when it comes to race. And that history isn't very good when it comes to black students. Those students also testified at the trial, black students, Hispanic students, testified about how, what their experience was at the University of North Carolina. Some of them were recent alums. Some of them, I think, were current students at the time they testified, and about how they were still often the only student of color in their classes, how they were sometimes called racial epithets at the University of North Carolina how they felt tokenized, and that everyone in the classroom would look at them to speak for their race when any topic came up in class that might have some kind of an aspect of racial difference in it. So Judge Big wrote a long footnote about the historical expert evidence that they had put in and also talked about the testimony from those student interveners and it clearly um, had an effect on her. But that helped the university because that shows that they still need to use race in order to hit those goals that they have of getting the educational benefits of diversity. So did she want them to do more in some way? Did she suggest what they should be doing? Here's the point I think it goes to. You may remember, June, that In the Michigan cases, Grutter and Gratz, the cases that, you know, almost 20 years ago, the court held that colleges and universities could use race in admissions. Justice O'Connor, in that case, wrote that she thought that colleges and universities would no longer have to take race into account in 25 years because it would no longer be necessary. And I think that what Judge Biggs is doing is, though I don't think she ever mentions that part of the Grutter opinion, I think she's putting down a little bit of a marker to say, we're not close to that. We might be close in time to that 25 years, but in terms of our country's evolution, we are nowhere near close to the time, at least not at the University of North Carolina, where race is no longer necessary because we have some kind of a colorblind society. That's what I think Judge Biggs was doing. So the Students for Fair Admission said they'll appeal, and if necessary, up to the Supreme Court. And that's the point, isn't it? They want to appeal this case up to the Supreme Court. Exactly. They always expected that this was only the first stop on their journey for this case. So they will appeal it to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. And whatever outcome the Fourth Circuit has, I would expect that the losing party would then seek review from the United States Supreme Court. The Students for Fair Admissions lost the case against Harvard and appealed it to the Supreme Court. The court postponed action on that case. Tell us what happened. Well, the court has asked for the views of the Solicitor General in that case, which is a common move that the Supreme Court makes when it is thinking about a case that has some kind of federal constitutional question or federal implication. It wants to know what the views of the United States government are 
when the court considers whether or not to take the case. So the Supreme Court has asked for the views of the Solicitor General's office, and I think that we expect that the Solicitor General will deliver that brief to the court sometime before the end of the calendar year. There's no deadline for the Solicitor General to file that brief. They can file it whenever they want to, but we kind of expect them to do it before the end of the calendar year. And that will allow the court, if it wants to, to make a decision as to whether or not it reviews the Harvard case in time for that case to be heard this term. Advocates for affirmative action, are they afraid that the Supreme Court will take the case? Here's the interesting thing, June. So SFFA has put in its questions presented to the court, should the court overrule Grutter and Grass? They've teed it right up. They say that that's what they want the court to review their case to do. That's their first question presented. So it's not just proponents of affirmative action, you know, making something up. That's clearly what SFFA is just right out asking the court to do. You know, when you get away from a hot button topic like abortion, like affirmative action, and you're just in the realm of regular cases, the Supreme Court doesn't usually take a case to review unless there's some kind of a divide between the lower courts. And so Judge Biggs' decision would usually caution away from the court taking a case to review. Here we have Judge Biggs' decision being very much in line with Judge Burroughs' decision from the District of Massachusetts, which was affirmed by the First Circuit. So these two courts seem to be looking at the UNC applications process and the Harvard process very much the same way, all in line with what the Supreme Court has held. That would all be something to say, court, there's nothing for you to weigh in on. The courts are all seeing this the same way, in line with your precedent. Let it go. Let the law further develop before you take it on and rule on it. That would be how a Supreme Court advocate would look at this case if it were not a hot-button case. But with the change in the court, with new members of the court who probably disagree with the court precedent, everybody has this up for grabs. Thanks, Audrey. That's Audrey Anderson of Bass Barian Sims. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. President Joe Biden's bipartisan commission studying changes to the U.S. Supreme Court released a draft of its findings in which it wrote favorably of creating term limits for judges and cautioned against the court adding justices. It lost two of its conservative members and several of its liberal members were critical of the initial findings. In short, neither liberals nor conservatives seem to be overly happy with the commission. Joining me is Josh Blackman, a professor of constitutional law at the South Texas College of Law. These initial recommendations, just give us an overview of what they, well, recommended is not the right word because they're not making recommendations. What did they say? The panel discussed a couple major areas. One, whether the court should be expanded with new seats. Two, whether term limits for the justices might be appropriate. Three, whether the court's so-called shadow or emergency dockets should be reformed. And fourth, they discuss uh, judicial ethics and the ethics codes that applies to the Supreme Court. The long and short of it is the court, I'm sorry, the panel made no recommendations in the court. It isn't even clear they can make recommendations of what to do. And even the areas on which there was some agreement, there was no majority opinion, so to speak. Um, there was a pretty strong sentiment against expanding the court. There was some agreement on whether there should be term limits but there was disagreement if the term limits could be imposed through a simple act of Congress, a statute, whether a constitutional amendment was necessary. So really, June, at the end, this was much ado about nothing. Um, there really wasn't much that came of this lengthy product of the several hundred pages of report that, frankly, I didn't even read. You didn't read it, but you're doing an interview on it. I skimmed it. and I, I, got, right. the, I got the highlights. Many people have said that the president just appointed this panel to waste time or to bide his time because he wants to avoid this issue which liberals are so incensed about. I think that's right. President Biden was never in favor of so-called court reform. He was always very transparent about that fact. Um, but he, I think he created this commission to sort of deflect attention for a few months. Um, on Friday, after the commission had their meeting, a reporter asked Biden what he thought about term limits for the Supreme Court. And President Biden had one word answer, no. Does it? No, he said no. So it's like, you know, you submit a paper to be graded, and then five minutes later, your teacher says, never mind, not interested. 
right? It's immediate rejection of the only area there was some agreement upon. Um, so this was really much to do about nothing. Biden didn't want to do anything. He created this egghead panel with fellow academics to sort of stretch things out. And now it's going to just vanish and disappear. There's actually some bipartisan support for term limits, isn't there? There is. Um, the the panel said it was consensus and term limits, but they didn't agree on whether it could be done through a simple act of Congress, a statute, whether a new constitutional amendment was necessary. Um, if it requires an amendment to the Constitution, it's not going to happen. We don't we don't have that much consensus in the country at all. Uh, perhaps it could happen through a statute. But then Biden was asked about it and said, nope, no, not interested. So, uh, again, I think we're basically back where we started from. I mean, he has said in the past that he's not in favor of packing the court. But to say no to term limits, why have the panel? I don't think Biden ever wanted to have his panel. I think he simply needed a way to deflect attention to show he was doing something. During the campaign, he promised that he would create a panel, and he did it. And now he will probably ignore their report. And you know, I think it's significant this panel is not charged with making recommendations. They were basically have their hands tied from the outset. Two conservative members of the panel quit last week. Any right. indication as to why they quit at this point after six months? Well, these are respected people. One is Jack Goldsmith at Harvard, who worked at the George W. Bush uh, Justice Department. The other is Caleb Nelson, who's a law professor at Virginia, clerk for Clarence Thomas. I know both of them very well. These are respected people. There must be something in the report they didn't agree with, or there must be something coming that they're going to disagree with. We don't, we don't quite know the difference. Um, but I'll make this point a little more clearly. Uh, there were no dissents, right? Uh, uh, the members were not required to join the report. They could have written their own dissents. But I think this sort of resignation was like a quiet dissent, a signal that this was not uh, unanimous, that there was, there, was, there was disagreement over what remedies to adopt. Also, the draft report will say some commissioners believe, but other commissioners believe. So there's not even a, a consensus about the report in the report. Right. And, and the, the group doesn't even agree on what their charge was, is what they were instructed to do. It's a very weird, disjointed process. I mean, imagine a different world, June, where the government said, okay, you have 60 days, give us a list of five recommendations. They would know exactly what to do. But Biden had this sort of open-ended report saying, let's discuss the Supreme Court, and, and that's it. So it, it's kind of like a long article that you see in an academic journal that, again, no one will read, including me, because I have... <laughs> It's more than 200 pages of material. I think you should be required to read it. I think that would violate the Eighth Amendment as cruel and unusual punishment. I saw that joke from Justice Scalia, by the way. Justice Scalia once said reading the entire Affordable Care Act would be a violation of the Eighth Amendment, so I can't take credit for that joke. Did they come out firmly against court packing? Yes, for the most part. Um, there was a very general consensus that expanding the court would do significant damage to the institution in the long run. Uh, a few members of the of the commission actually spoke up saying we need to be more open. Uh, Lawrence Tribe of Harvard said we're going to break the glass limit, right, in case the emergency break the glass. Um, but there, there's just no movement for it. I think that, that, that approach is dead. Polls have shown that the public has lost respect for the court. The court is more out of favor than it's been in a while after uh, the last term. Is there a way to fix that without tinkering with the court? 
Well, you know, I think it's, it, it depends which way you look at it, right? There are six conservative members now, and therefore you have more conservative opinions. Um, but even then, you have justices who are more moderate, Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, sort of in the middle of, the, of this 3-3-3 court. Um, so I don't think tinkering it is necessary. And indeed, I think trying to tinker with the court would likely prove disastrous in the long run. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's sort of this freak of accident that Trump got the Ginsburg seat right before the election and, and the Scalia seat stayed open through the other election. So there were two additional justices that probably wouldn't have happened otherwise. Uh, the other way to look at it is Republicans have had many justices over the years who simply weren't conservative. John Paul Stevens, David Souter, O'Connor and Kennedy on most occasions. So, you know, the Democrats got lucky in a number of cases, but they've They've not rolled the dice well the last, you know, six years or so. It really wasn't uh, a freak of nature. It really was Mitch McConnell responsible for holding open Justice Scalia's seat and then using different reasoning to fill Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat right before an election. That politicizes the court, doesn't it, more than it already is? Well, look, I I think the short answer is that um, McConnell is a politician, um, and he saw an opportunity, and he was willing to um, keep the seat open at great expense. Um, and so far, the Democrats have not been able to sort of retaliate with that sort of hardball. So I do, I do think the McConnell decision, when I said freak of nature, that the vacancies arose at just the right moment, mm-hmm. uh, because there's no guarantee either the Scalia seat or the Ginsburg seat would open up just when they did. How would the Democrats retaliate? Do you have any advice for the Democrats? Well, look, the leader of the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, said not interested. So I think the short answer is there's no momentum. Uh, Perhaps, you know, progressive activists wish for it, but there's not much. We've heard several justices talk about how the court is not politicized. Do you think they take into account how some of their more controversial decisions will affect the public? I hope not. Uh, I think when the justices start thinking about the general public, it becomes more political, right? Because that means they can be swayed by things that are not law. Um, in my mind, the, the least political justice is the justice who puts his head in the sand and doesn't consider those sort of sentiments. But we don't live in my sort of ideal world. I think Roberts cares deeply that people think. I think Kavanaugh does. And Barrett may as well. The other three don't The draft analysis said that Congress would be authorized to write a code of conduct for the justices. And but Chief Justice Roberts has suggested he doesn't believe that Congress has congressional authority to impose conduct rules on the Supreme Court. He did say that. Do you think the court needs some conduct rules because we don't know when they're recusing themselves and when they're not? Well, so there's there's two questions. One, can Congress write a code for the justices? I used to be persuaded by John Roberts that they couldn't, and now I think Roberts is wrong. Um, I, I think it's true that the Constitution, you know, refers to the creation of the Supreme Court, but not the judges. And Congress has to enact the, or create the, the seats of the Supreme Court by statute, right? Even the Chief Justice was created by statute. And if Congress creates the seats by statute, they can regulate that seat. So I think Roberts' argument that separation of powers is simply wrong, but he'll probably stick to it. Um, I think the more important question is, what would that code be? And let's be frank, your recusal. Right. If a justice steps down in a case on most courts, if a justice recuses, if a judge recuses, it's no big deal because there are a bunch of other judges. But in the U.S. Supreme Court, if a justice recuses, there's no one to back up as an alternate. So I think you have to be a little more thoughtful with the sort of standards you have. Um, But I I, I think Congress could 
do something for the for the um, for the court. Do you think the court itself, the justices, should be doing that? Should have outlined some rules and regulations for at least for recusal? I, I think the justices internally do. There was a discussion in the early 1990s, going back 30 years, where Chief Justice Rehnquist asked all the sitting justices to agree to the code that binds lower court judges. Um, we don't know if that's been updated. We, don't, we just we don't know. Um, so I think it'll be meaningful. But, you know, the justices, they recuse all the time. And it happens in various cases. In fact, Justice Alito is known to recuse when a case is granted. And then he sells the stock and he goes back on the case. So it's sort of more silly. Uh, I think judges should just not own stocks. They should own mutual funds and index funds. And that, that, that addresses almost all these issues. Uh, but that, that's my naive approach. Didn't the commission say something about that as well? There was a report in the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago that a lot of these lower court judges are having um, owning stock in cases where they don't realize it. Uh, but the justices are pretty good about the stock ownership. Uh, there, there, there might be some errors that slip through, but they're, they're pretty diligent upon that. I understand that this report addressed the shadow docket and the problems with it. It's, does it seem as if the justices themselves are starting to recognize the problems with the shadow docket or not recognize? I think Alito said. Alito is like, get over it. This is not a big deal. Alito's not happy with the criticism. Um, I think Justice Breyer is sort of criticizing it. Justice Kagan's criticizing it. But then again, they're on the losing side of these, these cases. So I don't think that there's much appetite. I mean, keep in mind, June, when these cases come to the court, the parties are asking for immediate ruling, right? They, they, they want a ruling in two or three days. They, the court can't move slow when the parties want to move fast. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with what, what relief the parties are asking for. I think the, I think the shadow doc stuff is really, really overblown. I, I really do. Um, if the court were to grant certainty and decide the case six months later, it would come out the exact same way. So people, I think, are just upset at the result, not necessarily the process. Thanks, Josh. That's Professor Josh Blackman of the South Texas College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.